everyone, it's me, Ryan, back again from PAX East, and super sleep-deprived. Yay! So I'm sorry if you hear scratching and rumbling or whatever in the background. My dogs are in the floor above me and are trying to kill each other. Not actually, they're just playing, but, you know, they're basically trying to kill each other. So, let's, let's talk about PAX East for a second before we jump into today's episode. PAX East was interesting. It was sadly kind of empty in terms of booths and new stuff, which I kind of expected, but it was still sad. There was just so much empty space that usually wasn't there. It did make me feel a little bit sad. Um, I bought a decent amount of stuff, a lot of board games, card games, some decorations, a couple things for some friends. I also bought a $100 My Hero Academia card box that got lost, and I'm still very mad at myself about, but I didn't really play anything at PAX. Nothing really caught my attention, and a lot of it wasn't even new stuff. But what really pulled me in every day were the panels. First, on Thursday, I went to the Storytime panel, which was a game journalist, I think, and that was mildly interesting. I learned how exploitative the game's writing industry is, so there's that. I stopped by the Jackbox area and played Champed Up, my first and only Jackbox game that convention, and I won by drawing a singular kobold which people voted for almost unanimously, and two other people even tried to copy the next round, so you know you won if someone tries to copy your answer. That night, I also went to an Undertale live concert at a separate venue, and I am very glad I went. It would have been fun going with someone I knew, but it was definitely worth it by myself. The crowd voted with hand raises on what to do, like fight or spare, or date or hang out with Papyrus, or watch Metaton's opera or go on a date with Sans. Very good music, very fun concept, and I had a great time. And by that point, I had not slept for 36 hours due to getting home from work right as I had to leave for PAX, so music that hits emotionally normally hits a lot harder when you are sleep-deprived, and I'm not ashamed to admit that I teared up at um, Undertale the Song and Hopes and Dreams. It, It was really good. Then at the train station that night at like 10.30pm, I watched a guy in his 50s get into a fight with an Aunt Annie's pretzel worker over mustard, I think? And it lasted around 15 minutes, with a station officer having to walk over to make sure it didn't escalate. It was a very interesting way to end my night. On Friday, I went to a Pick the Best Pokemon panel, where everyone had to go up and argue for their favorite Pokemon. It was a lot less here's everyone's actual vote on which was better, and more who gave the funniest reason and presented it the funniest way. Bidoof almost won, having a very strong unbeaten first place spot, but someone came in at the last second with Rabu, which won by a small bit more applause just because of its drip. There was a lot of chanting for both sides, it was actually really impressive. Blaziken, my pick, actually kept a pretty solid middle, which I expected and can accept. I also went to Christian Lamont's VA panel. That was actually a lot of fun. It was primarily a Q&A, but a very good way to spend some time. I also got ProZD's autograph on my Fire Emblem card for Daros, and then later that night, went to his Rate My Waifu slash Husbando panel. I was almost one of the first people at the mic, but the line kind of closed me off outside of it, so I just kind of sadly walked back to my seat. So, um, some highlights. King DDD was suggested, specifically the Right Back At Ya version, specifically the English dub of Right Back At Ya, and he got a 20 out of 5. Let Me Solo Her from Elden Ring also got a 5 out of 5. Some guy suggested a character that turns into a young girl, and he got booed with the rating being, you hear that audience? That out of 5. It was a fun time. It was a very, very fun panel. I sadly couldn't stick around the whole time, but it was great. Saturday was mostly waiting in line for autographs, since I had to get there an hour beforehand, or wait two hours in the line afterwards, if I got in line at all. I got Christian to sign my Selif card, since I sadly didn't have an Ignatz one to sign. Um, I got Kira Buckland to sign a Jolene print and an Erica card, and had Casey Mongillo sign a Fire Bunny poster and some fan art that a friend of a friend had made. All very nice people, all very great, great, nice people. I also tried to watch a Psychology of Pokemon panel, but they spent 15 minutes introducing themselves and their book, and I had to leave 30 minutes early, so I didn't get to hear much. Maybe I'll look at their book one day. I also went to Kira and Casey's VA panel with my brothers, and it was fine. Another Q&A mainly. It was, you know, some stuff I'd heard already 
from other sources, but there was some fun stuff that I didn't think of before. The only issue was some people decided that they got to be the center of attention that panel and hogged the mic for a bit too long. One guy even got up there and asked four questions. It ate up like 10 minutes at least out of the hour by himself. But uh, I get it. People are nervous. Just, you know, try to keep your question concise. That's my only opinion. Um, And after that, we went to a pretty funny Price is Right parody panel. They accidentally flashed the correct answer to one of the games, and everyone in the crowd helped the contestant get it right since they didn't see it. It was a very fun panel. It was actually very entertaining. I'm sad I didn't go to more of those game show panels. They, they were great. Finally, Sunday. I went to a Pokemon Choose Your Own Adventure panel. It was small, but they tried their best, and it was really cute. They got two people from the crowd to play a little text-based game where both of them meet Champion Leon, who was acted out by a guy cosplaying him, before being struck by lightning and sent to Hisui, with one of them turning into a Pokemon. They then choose what to do, with both the volunteers and the hosts acting it all out. Um, for some reason, like, Misty shows up. The guy doing Laventon was dressed as, like, Dr. Horrible from Dr. Horrible Sing-Along, but when they chose to look at Komodo instead, he had to rush behind the stage, quick change into, like, a Jodoro outfit with a katana, and walk out and be like, I am Commander Komodo, how can I help? Yeah, they, they just kind of, like, combined everything in this one little text adventure. They had PMD, Arceus, the base games. It was just everything, and it was... It was very doofy, it was not serious at all, and um, nothing incredible, but very fun. And finally, I ended the day by watching a team of three people desperately try to create a playable game in 45 minutes, including music and sprite work. They had to work around problems like USBs not working and no internet connection, and the winners of trivia questions were able to impose extra challenges on the team, so they would be like, okay... I want the enemies to be this, or I want the power-ups to be this, or I want that person to do a lap around the room. So it was all very amusing and chaotic, and I loved it. I then had to head to work, and still have not recovered my sleep, so I have been exhausted all week, but it was worth it. So, with that introduction out of the way, um, this episode's actually going to be very, very interesting and special. You guys like band episodes, right? Like, you might think, oh, you can't watch banned episodes, especially some of them that, like, caused actual real problems for everybody. But no, that's where you're wrong. You actually can watch a lot of these episodes still online. So today we're going to be looking at pretty much almost all banned episodes. Only one of them is not a banned episode. This first one is legit. But everything after that is very questionable episode that they just, like, don't acknowledge anymore to a degree like sometimes they'll mention it but for the most part these these episodes they like to pretend don't exist so let's jump right into it with episode 37 tito's mysterious mansion i don't know why i said it like that but it was fun synopsis taking shelter in a storm the group find themselves in the theater of a copycat themed performer and her ditto Ash wants to test his strength against the performing Pokemon, while Team Rocket wants to steal it to impress their boss with fake Pokemon. As the group walks along a plane, a massive storm blows into the sky in literal seconds. Seeking shelter, they see a decorative castle-themed cabin in the distance and rush inside without knocking. Inside, they find a theater stage but don't see any people. Just as they all decide that this is a good enough place to wait out the rain, since there's no one around, they hear Pikachu's confused cry, and turn to see not one, but two Pikachus standing next to them, both imitating each other. Misty then picks up the second shoe to say hi, but is shocked to see it has two beady eyes and a long, simple mouth instead of the normal Pika face, dropping it in shock. Ash, wanting to catch this new kind of Pikachu, has his own attack it. When he takes a chance and throws the Pokeball, another one flies out of nowhere and knocks it away. Turning to the source, Ash sees someone dressed identically to him. Misty thinks it's a guy, but Brock knows it's a girl. Imitating Ash's voice at first, the girl then introduces herself as Duplica. What's most fun about this whole situation is that in order to dress up as Ash, she had to also have the limited edition Pokemon League hat, which Ash said in the Mankey episode was really hard to get. 
So it's just impressive that she happened to get one as well, just in case anyone she tried to mimic had one of those limited edition hats. The girl then remarks that her Pokemon hasn't gotten over a bad habit, as the Pikachu changes to a Ditto. She explains that, even though Ditto should be able to mimic things perfectly, it keeps its face for some reason. Ash offhandedly says that it sounds boring not being able to teach Ditto moves, and Duplica challenges him to a battle to prove him wrong. Ash sends out Bulbasaur, with Duplica imitating his battle style as she has Ditto transform into a copy of Bulbasaur. Ash has his bulbs use Razor Leaf, but Ditto counters with Vine Whip, surprising the group as it knocks away the leaves and restrains Bulbasaur, causing Ash to surrender sadly, really quickly. Duplica then takes the group backstage, showing off her giant wardrobe, quick changing her outfit, hair, and even voice to imitate Nurse Joy and then Officer Jenny. Brock, having earlier said that she was too young for him, comments this. Very good. But she doesn't capture the more adult charm of the real joy in Jenny. Ash, meanwhile, is sulking near a window for losing to a fake hedgesaur. Brock tries to cheer him up by saying that Ditto's powers are basically unbeatable. A lie to anyone who's actually faced one in the game. He then says that Ash more or less fought a real Bulbasaur instead of a fake, and remarks on the impressive knowledge Duplica had, knowing Bulbasaur's moveset offhand. Ash realizes that he's right, and tells Duplica that she'd be a great Pokemon master. She denies this, though, saying that her true calling is to become a Ditto Master of the Theator. She then reminisces about one of the performances she gave, acting in front of an incredibly easy-to-please crowd, as they burst out laughing when she puts on a gloom hat and explicitly tells people, I'm doing a gloom impression. They just lose it at that. As a montage of her in different costumes plays, she tells the group that she started this theater because she likes imitating Pokemon and putting on the show to anyone who happened to stop by for a rest. Imagine this IRL, a comedian getting popular just because they dress up like a dog and bark a couple times with no other jokes. I'm sure there's someone out there doing that to some success right now, actually, so never mind. I'm sure it exists somewhere. Things go sour when it's Ditto's turn, though. Calling a Machoke and then Voltorb up to the stage, Ditto just can't get their faces right to the crowd's pure anger. They get furious at this. A man yells that, hey, that Ditto's fake. It can't transform at all. Which causes Ditto to blow up as the Voltorb in its own anger. Why did they get so mad at this? I think this part's a bit interesting. Her whole routine is based around Ditto imitating Pokemon perfectly, which, according to the anime, any Ditto can do. But instead of that, it keeps a funny, unmatching face, which angers everyone. This seems super backwards to me. It's like, imagine someone's routine is walking across the stage, nothing else. Is the guy going to have more success walking across it like most human beings do, or doing a funny little silly walk as he does? All I'm trying to say is, I think Ditto's act works better as a comedy where it doesn't actually copy the Pokemon perfectly and instead gets laughs from doing something silly with the Pokemon's form. Like, I think that would be a much better recipe for success than whatever the anime is trying to sell me. Just my hot take though, so take it however you want. She also calls out Ditto in an oddly harsh way through her sadness. Ditto, they don't want to see an imperfect transformation. This little one is trying its hardest to master transform perfectly, but its face still stays the same. Suddenly, Team Rocket appears on the stage. Ash just claps slowly and nails them with harshness. Let's give him a hand. Okay, show's over. Time to go back home. Meowth then, as if on a bungee cord, jumps grabs the Ditto and flies back without touching the ground. James sends out Weezing, filling the room with smog with the rockets escaping in the chaos. After a commercial break, the evil trio are shown to have taken Ditto to a house they're using as a hideout. It's kind of impressive that they put this house together because it's just like attached to their balloon. It's kind of neat. Jesse and James, possibly due to their failure in the Safari Zone, beg Ditto to become a Dratini, holding up a book with its picture for reference. Then, they act out the scene. James holds up a poorly drawn Dratini sign, offering it to a Jesse-played Giovanni, 
who's petting Meowth, and even doing the voice changer thing somehow. Yes, well done. I will reward you lavishly for your hard work. From now on, you will take my place as the head of Team Rocket. <laughs> your wish is my command. It's a fun visual. James wants to turn Ditto in quickly, but Jesse suggests having some fun first, showing Ditto a picture and asking what the person in it would look like as an adult, blushing madly as she asks. Oh dear. Meowth spots the picture of a young boy, with Jesse saying that he was her first crush. Wild that she still has a plastic sealed picture of him. She asks Ditto again, and it agrees to the change becoming a copy of the picture with the face changed, to Jesse's annoyance and James and Meowth's absolute joy. Jesse tries to have it become the Dratini in the book, but Ditto just becomes a copy of the book instead. James realizes the flaw in the plan, and Jesse threatens to kill the Ditto, despite Ditto itself probably being a pretty valuable find to turn in. Back at the theater, Duplica continues to worry about her Pokemon as Brock reassures her that they sent their own Mons to look for it. Ash then ponders further that Ditto's skill is dependent on the trainer's abilities, basically repeating what Brock told him earlier. These musings have no point though, as Pidgeotto and Zubat return from their scouting, having found the rocket hiding house. As they're about to rush off towards them, Duplica proposes an idea. The Rockets, their house revealed to just have their Meowth balloon completely visible on the roof, continue to yell at Ditto's incompetence, with it copying Meowth. Under the threat of violence, the Ditto finally manages to get its face right, just as Ash's voice rings out in the room. The group, dressed in their own Team Rocket uniforms, recite the motto back at them. Make it double-double. <sighs> Quit imitating us. To protect the world from devastation. To ignite all peoples within our nation. <sighs> this is insulting. To denounce the evils of truth and love. To extend our reach to the stars above. Ash. Misty. And Brock. Duplica. That's right. Team Rocket blast off at the speed of light. Surrender now or prepare to fight all of us. Pika Pika! That was great to do the whole thing! Now I know why they like saying all that dumb stuff so much! It's fun! They all actually don't look too bad in those outfits. I'm just wondering why Duplica had so many of these uniforms ready, one for each of them. Jesse and James, angry at the mockery, refuse to give Ditto back, then smugly show two identical, both talking Meowth. Team Rocket brags that they managed to force Ditto to fix its face habit, and as they're laughing, Duplica comes up and gives them a heartfelt thank you for teaching Ditto to overcome its flaw, not knowing that they did so by threatening to murder it. Ash, Brock, and Misty are touched by Duplica's gratitude, and Team Rocket is also moved to tears. Ash suggests they just end this without fighting for once, and the duo agree, handing Duplica one of the Meowth. We all see where this is going, but they don't. The walls of the house collapse, with Team Rocket taking off in their balloon. Duplica, thankfully, quickly realizes that the Meowth she's holding isn't Ditto, and chucks him with an incredible amount of strength at the balloon. Jesse and James wonder how she could tell, before Ditto bites Jesse's arm, frees itself, and jumps down to its trainer, with Duplica saying that she wouldn't be a good trainer if she couldn't recognize her own Ditto, hee <laughs> hee. Meowth yells at the duo, who then press a button to lower a cannon. Duplica then has Ditto transform into a cannon as well. Ash is amazed, then has Pikachu climb into Ditto and be shot out. Where it got the gunpowder? I don't know. Maybe it counts as like a Pokemon move. That's actually kind of a fun concept, huh? The Rockets try to hit Pikachu with a net from their cannon first, but the mouse zaps it. And through a wire connection, the rest of the balloon as well. How did they think this was going to work with an attached net to begin with? Pikachu can just zap through it and hit them. Meowth, still holding onto the balloon, grips it hard enough to puncture the exterior, causing them all to fly off. Duplica happily embraces her ditto, then asks it to try transforming into Pikachu, which it does perfectly. The main trio praises its improvements, but Ash now has trouble telling which is his. 
Duplica jokingly says he should work on becoming a better trainer if he can't tell, before picking her ditto chew back up. Later, Duplica hammers a sign onto her theater, reopening it and saying bye to the group with the promise that they're welcome back anytime, before our heroes head off into a rainbow viewing field. As we then see Team Rocket attempting to shove Meowth into a Dratini costume in a desperate attempt to appeal to their boss. Meowth scratches them and they all start beating each other in response. A classic episode ending. This episode's a pretty fun one. It's silly, but not over the top for the most part, and has a few pretty good moments. And it seemed to be enjoyed well enough by people at the time that they actually bring Duplica back in another episode in Gen 2. One of the more interesting aspects of this episode is the long-lasting effect it had on Ditto. They are, according to both the anime and the Pokedex in the games, able to make a perfect copy of another Pokemon. The face staying on the copy is just a quirk that this specific Ditto and maybe a few others had to overcome. But now, Ditto is known for having its doofy face stay on the duplicate, with merch, cards, and even some official art depicting it with that simple little smile. A one-episode joke in the anime created a complete change in this Pokemon's lore, and that's kinda fun. Oh boy, next up... Um couple things to note here before we get started. We are about to experience the infamous Porygon episode, which caused epileptic seizures, among other lesser eye strain symptoms. While many people may think otherwise, this episode is actually very easy to find and watch online. Just make sure you take precautions while watching, as the part that caused the seizures is actually that bad. But for now, Enjoy episode 38, Electric Soldier Porygon. Synopsis. At a new city's Pokemon Center, Nurse Joy is panicking due to the Pokemon transport machine malfunctioning, sending different Pokemon than the ones intended. Asking the creator of the transport system for help, they soon learn that the issues are caused by Team Rocket using the artificial Pokemon Porygon to cause mayhem in the system. The group, unwillingly transported into the computer as well, teams up with a second Porygon to stop the chaos. Relaxing on a balcony overlooking a new city, Ash agrees to take Pikachu to a Pokemon Center after the mouse exaggeratedly presents himself as an old man. Arriving, the group are met with Nurse Joy, hurriedly answering non-stop ringing phones, while Chansey quickly run around behind her. She then heads into the back, where a man wearing those anime nerd swirly glasses yells that the machine should be perfect, as he built it himself. Ash's group follows her, and asks what's going on, with her explaining that when rare Pokemon are transferred to another location, the Pokemon that arrives is a different, much less rare one, caused by some bug in the system. The nerdy man, Dr. Akihabara, suddenly notices something that really worries him, but tries to brush it off when asked. Brock comments that it may be a computer virus, causing Ash to imagine a chibi demon-looking virus poking a sick computer. Brock suggests maybe trying some kind of vaccine program, which angers the doctor, as his program is too advanced to need something that simple. He then rushes out of the room without explanation. Nurse Joy tells the group that the doctor was the one who invented the transport system, before giving the group a map to his lab which is less of a map and more of just an arrow, house, and Poke Center on an otherwise blank piece of paper. The group then goes to his lab, which looks to be a pretty decrepit large mansion. Walking right in, Misty comments that it feels weird to be barging into a house like this, despite them having done it plenty of times before. Ash even calls her out on this, pointing out that she followed them in, which she gives a non-response to. They're then stopped by a large, heavily polygoned, floating head of the Doctor blocking the hallway, which then attacks them. Pikachu tries zapping it, causing it to scream and break apart, before reforming itself, being like haha lol JK and saying that it's unaffected by electric attacks. Brock then notices that it appears to be formed by a small hologram device, with the Doctor acknowledging their smarts and asking them to follow him. He then has them step into a large glass cylinder, which they do, no questions asked, as a door suddenly shuts behind them. He explains that they are all in a larger version of the Pokeball transfer machine, just as a Porygon appears next to them. The doctor goes on to further elaborate that he created this Pokemon himself, making it the first man-made one, and him a genius. 
Misty's then like, Well, if you're a genius, then why couldn't you figure out what was causing the glitch? Dr. Akihabara gives a little anime smirk and says, Oh, I figured it out alright. He tells the group that the issue was caused by Team Rocket stealing his other Porygon and sneaking into the computer network, causing chaos as they saw fit inside. He then warns that if they were to actually use an antivirus program, it would kill Team Rocket, which he doesn't want to do. But I say just try it anyway, they've survived worse. Continuing, the doctor tells the group that with the machine, they can be transported into the computer as well, and with the help of the other Porygon, stop Team Rocket physically, saving their lives while also fixing the program. Ash and his friends try to politely decline the offer and just make their way out, but the doctor turns on the machine without their permission, forcing them into the computer against their will. Misty worries if they'll even be able to get back, but he ignores her. That is not cool, my dude. Inside the computer, which looks like Tron mixed with a subway map, Porygon saves the group from falling by increasing in size and catching them on its back. Following the network highway, the group begins to hunt for Team Rocket. Speaking of, the rockets are meanwhile creating a traffic block, complete with car horns from nowhere, in the middle of the network stockading Pokeballs. They then try to give their motto, but Meowth yells at them for leaving him to do all the hard work of actually gathering the Pokemon. Just as Jesse is all like, Chill, no one else is here, we can take our time. Ash yells at them to stop! You violated the law! The rockets send out Arbok and Weezing, with Weezing smoke screening the Porygon. Caught in the smog, Porygon begins analyzing Weezing, copying it with conversion and applying a new skin, which I don't like. It's full of holes and it really bothers me. Porygon then charges Weezing, knocking it into Arbok and making both of them faint. Team Rocket then sends out their stolen Porygon to fight back, causing the two Digimon to fight each other, shifting into a sword and a shield to clash. Dr. Akihabara yells for the group to use this opportunity to fix the network, which they do by moving literal roadblocks out of the way. The trio try to stop our heroes, but Pikachu just electrocutes them, which stuns them for long enough to be knocked away with their Porygon and the now mobile Pokeballs. The doctor is about to fix things, but leaves the Skype call when he notices that the Poke Center is accessing the program. We then cut to Nurse Joy, who, with some guy from Best Buy's Geek Squad, starts to run the vaccine program. The doctor calls them in a panic, but Nurse Joy reassures him that it'll all be fine with the antivirus program, and ending the call before Akihabara can explain the situation. The vaccine program, represented by this little ambulance drone, rushes down the network towards the main group, who cleared away all but the main roadblock. Akihabara logs back onto Zoom, and hurriedly warns them of the coming attack, telling them to get away before their digital data gets wiped, preventing their return to reality. The ambulance then catches up to them, locking a sight onto the group and preparing to fire syringe missiles at the protagonists. They all quickly hop onto Porygon, attempting to fly away from the violent program. They then sail past Team Rocket, who are running back towards the fight and then yell at the group for fleeing before the battle was over. Ash warns them to run from the vaccine as well, just as they all see it destroy the final roadblock, causing Pokeballs to fly towards them at rapid speeds. Just as Jesse and James lament the possibility of dying in the computer, Meowth rescues them on their Porygon. The vaccine program then Transformer morphs into a Star Wars looking battleship and rushes towards the two groups. It just starts firing missiles at both of them, which explode and cause the air around them to flash red and blue really rapidly. While this is not the exact scene that caused the infamous incident, these are still not pleasant to look at. Porygon is skimmed with one of the shots, momentarily dropping but then recatching the group. The two Porygon then begin to race towards the nearby exit, with Team Rockets falling behind. The Geek Squad member, commenting, Oh boy, this here must be a strong virus, triggers the program to enter Turbo Mode, unfurling into a giant laser cannon. It blasts a giant burst at Team Rocket, which also flashes terrible colors, but still wasn't the main cause of the incident. The shock of the code somehow causes an error in the system, with Nurse Joy demanding he not use it again, as they can't repair the transfer network if it completely breaks. Team Rocket then wakes up, having somehow survived the blast, but now being stuck inside the error, which is represented as a giant hole. And to make matters worse, they're unable to escape due to their Porygon being knocked out. 
Just as Ash's Porygon nears the exit, he demands that they go back and help Team Rocket. Misty initially objects, but after seeing the vaccine target the air hole to close it up, manages to pull them out at the very last second with Bulbasaur's Vine Whip. Unfortunately, due to the new extra weight, Porygon slows significantly and is having trouble moving to the exit. You know, just like a computer when you install too many crypto miners on it. This gives the battleship a chance to catch up, letting it launch another barrage of missiles. Pikachu electrocutes and blows them up for time. And this, my dear listeners, is the moment where nearly 700 viewers were taken by ambulances, with even more suffering mild symptoms. The screen is filled almost entirely with rapidly flashing blue and red strobing lights for several seconds, long enough to trigger the response. It's not even a very key moment, it's just an in-between bit of action before the group exits the computer. But the ramifications these small few seconds had were immense, and I will discuss it more in closing. For now though, just know that the group makes it through the exit portal just as a missile fires in after them, causing the lab to explode, but the group exit alive, albeit very scuffed up. The group thanks Porygon for its help before Team Rocket falls out of another portal, completely unharmed actually. They declare that their fight isn't over! but quickly and happily thank the group for saving them despite all that before running off quickly. Dr. Akihabara laments that his human transport machine is broken, with the group showing little sympathy, telling him to make it safer next time. Back at the Pokemon Center, the transport machine is working perfectly again, with Nurse Joy praising the vaccine program for fixing it. Ash comments that no one will know they risk their lives in the computer, but the group agrees that it doesn't matter since everything was resolved and Nurse Joy seems happy. Pikachu pretends to be an old man again, and Ash asks Nurse Joy to heal his Pokemon up as the episode comes to a conclusion. I know I've been saying this a lot recently, but I really, truly do have a lot to say about this episode. I've already mentioned the obvious, with the incident causing seizures around Japan and as a result being taken completely out of circulation, being the first Japanese episode to do so. It's not 4Kids fault this time. But along with that, there is a lot of other stuff that surrounds and or happened as a result of this episode. Now, I will be transparent, I'm mostly just going to be picking out info from Bulbapedia and Wikipedia articles about this episode, so if you want to read more about it, go check them out as a starting point. Now, immediately the episode was pulled out of rotation, and Pokemon went on a short hiatus to work things out. As a result, several scenes in past episodes and episodes in development were altered, removing anything that may be remotely a strobing effect. When they came back, the network issued a formal apology on TV, explaining what happened and why, and started to give warnings to sit further away from the TV, watching in a well-lit room. They then closed by showing some fan mail they received in support of the show, thanking them for the encouragement despite everything. Finally, several episodes had their rotations messed around or were altered to make more sense and an extra backstory scene was added at the start of the Mewtwo movie since they were behind on introducing him in the anime. And Porygon and its evolutions have never made a starring role in the anime since. New regulations for TV programs were created, and time moved forward. While this was of course big news in Japan, America also kind of took it even further over the years following it. News outlets blew up with everything about it, it had to be assured that Western audiences wouldn't be susceptible to similar events, since we didn't air that flashy, fast, and high-energy anime nearly as much here. Several cartoons, like The Simpsons and South Park, mock the incident at different points in the future. The Guinness Book of World Records gave it the mocking award of most photosensitive epileptic seizures caused by a television show. And most interestingly of all, this incident, and the coverage of it, may be why we ever got Pokemon over here. It's interesting to think what the anime would be like if the strobe effect was never included. Would Porygon appear more? How would the initially planned schedule alter what was and wasn't made in the future? What would the reception of Pokemon be today if it didn't suffer any of the backlash caused by this incident? And most importantly, what would happen if Pokemon didn't come to the West? 
or at least didn't come to the West in the time it did. I've seen some people suggest that it was because of all the news covering the seizures that interest was garnered in Pokemon even more than the games already were doing. And this caused 4Kids to gain the rights to the dub and distribute it in the US. 4Kids getting these rights then led to other countries dubbing it, as most of them based it off the English released versions. Through a long chain of events, this eventually led to the current Pokemon anime, games, and merchandise we have today. Now, consider if we never got that dub. Would Pokemon be as big as it is today, with discussions about the new game happening non-stop online? Would it even be popular at all? Would it even still exist today? While Pokemon was loved in Japan, the support it saw in America and the rest of the Western world is undeniably important in its success story. It was one of the first popular anime series, long before we had companies distributing nearly every anime release like we do today. So if we never got that dub, or got it past Pokemon's peak popularity here, would Pokemon still exist? Would anime even be as big of a thing as it is? If you look at it with that hypothetical, we have to, in a weird way, thank this episode for causing seizures. Speaking of, there's a very interesting debate as to whether this episode ever got dubbed into English. Several of the voice actors, such as Maddie Blaustein and Eric Stewart, have come forward saying that they did, in fact, dub this episode, at least partially. And on top of that, they didn't even try to alter the flashing that caused seizures. But this is contested by other voice actors like Veronica Taylor and Rachel Lillis, saying that they have no recollection of dubbing this one. The reason this is so heavily debated is because, while there is word of confirmation from some and at worst uncertainty from others, it's possible that the words were put in their mouths. Before being verified as having said this information, some sites declared the dubbing to be legitimate, along with four kids not altering the flashing. So it's possible that the VAs, who have voiced many, many roles, including a lot of episodes of Pokemon by that point, just might not remember it correctly. They of course also may be remembering it perfectly accurately, but the conflicting stories and dubious information make it really hard to say for certain. Personally, I don't think it's likely that nearly a full year after the incident, 4Kids planned on putting the episode out themselves, without any edits to the problematic scenes. It just sounds implausible to me. Now, one final question I have, as I'm sure a lot of people do, is why? Why was this episode aired to begin with? Why was it passed through any sort of quality control? I have no photosensitivity issues, and even I had my eyes hurt while watching this. How could not one person behind the scenes during the creation of this episode say anything? Now, I am not Japanese or even involved in the animation industry, so I may be overstepping my bounds here, but I have a theory. It is a poorly kept secret that a lot of working on anime is hellish, with tight deadlines, crunch time, and being worked right up until the end with very little pay. So I think that maybe someone did notice this, and even point it out. But the episode was too far finished, too much was spent on it, and the deadline was right there. So they sent it out. Maybe they thought it wouldn't be an issue, not considering seizures, or thinking that it wouldn't be that bad. They took the risk and aired it. I cannot confirm this in the slightest, and I may be completely wrong, so please do not take this as any kind of fact. It's just my thoughts on the matter. So, to end this portion of the episode, I'd like to point out that while Porygon gets the hate for it all, it's not his fault. The Flash was never caused by Porygon, and was instead caused by the antivirus missiles and Pikachu. In reality, it was caused by a mistake on a lot of people's parts, but in the anime, it was caused by Pikachu and a missile. So, in conclusion, I'd like to quote a now-deleted tweet from the official Pokemon Twitter account on September 19th, 2020. Porygon did nothing wrong. Alright, next up we've got... Special episode! Holiday hijinks! <laughs> 
Synopsis. Meeting a jinx on the beach, they learn that it's trying to make its way to the North Pole so it can deliver a missing boot back to Santa Claus. The heroes agree to help it and set off onto the ocean. And that's it. That's all the synopsis you're getting. That's all you need. So, three things. One, this episode was banned in the States due to Jinx just actually straight up being blackface. Like, it's unobjectionable. While the dubbed episode is still actually watchable in several legitimate forms, some versions even recoloring Jinx to purple, it's still considered banned as it was never really aired on TV after the controversy. Two, because of the ban, this is going to be another episode that's going to have some crusty sounding clips. And three, you know how I said in the biker episode that they don't really go too crazy with the plots moving forward? This is one of the exceptions. It's wild and incredibly unintentionally funny because of that. We begin with a shot of a large castle mansion on top of a free-floating cliff face. There is no way the rock should be able to support this structure and should collapse and bring the building down with it, but don't worry about it. The narrator begins to explain that every Christmas, children eagerly await the arrival of Santa Claus, fading inside the building to find Jesse asleep in bed, to the narrator's bewilderment. I love how he sounds like a parent talking to their kid semi-sarcastically. Hey, wait a second. That's no kid. You know, like he's actually reading a book and playing it up like, Whoa, Curious George did what? I love, love, love it when series set in other worlds add Christmas to their lore. Because it implies the existence of Jesus Christ walking alongside a bunch of Pokemon with his disciples. In the Pokemon world, Jesus was crucified. While early Pokemon kind of worked under the assumption that it was the same world as ours, with Misty even using a crucifix and Brock telling the story of Noah's Ark, and it wasn't really until later that they changed it to be its own world, this is still really funny. Then quietly, Santa sneaks into the room and is captured in a net by Team Rocket. Jesse and Meowth celebrate their capture, saying that next time it'll work on the actual Santa, revealing that the Santa they caught is just James in the fake costume. Jesse then explains that the reason she's so adamant on catching Santa is that one night she was awake when he showed up, and was stunned to find out that he was actually a jinx. The jinx, then finding a broken doll Jesse knocked away earlier, takes it back to the North Pole with it, leaving Jesse flabbergasted and upset as the doll was never returned. Also, don't ask why they're in a castle. It's never explained whose castle this is. Maybe they're just breaking in and, like, spending the night there. I, I don't know. Meanwhile, on a sunny beach presumably nearby, Ash, Misty, and Brock spot a jinx near the water, holding up and talking to a boot. After learning it has a kiss that can put opponents to sleep, Ash has Pikachu electrocute it. Harmed slightly by the attack, Jinx then picks up Pikachu and, after it dodges a few, manages to land a kiss on it, knocking the rodent out. His trainer then sends out Charmander, flamethrowering and dazing Jinx. Just as Ash throws a Pokeball to catch it, it levitates the boot in front of its face to block the ball. Ash prepares to throw another ball, but Misty stops him, pointing out that the boot Jinx seems to be obsessed with may belong to its Pokemon trainer. While wondering why it's all alone then, the Jinx approaches them on its own volition, showing them the boot. Misty looks inside it and reacts with surprise. Then, without a hint of hesitation or sarcasm, tells the group that she's pretty sure it belongs to Santa Claus, pointing to a picture of him embroidered on the inside as proof. Originally, it was just his name in Japanese, so choosing to replace that with a picture of him is a really funny choice, because just imagine loving a boot so much, you have a waterproof picture of yourself put inside of it, so you know it's yours. Brock then summarizes that the Jinx's trainer must be Santa, and it got separated from him. The Pokemon then nods, and then tries to kiss him as thanks, which he squirms and struggles away from. It then starts glowing with psychic energy, hair waving around like tendrils, each gently touching the heads of the Pokemon and their trainers. They receive visions in their head of Jinx polishing the boot on the edge of an ice mass in the North Pole, before the ice suddenly breaks, setting it adrift at sea. 
The trio worries that without Jinx on his right side and the boot on his left foot, Santa won't be able to deliver presents this year. Fearing this, Ash promises to return Jinx and the boot to the North Pole in time for Christmas. Jinx then thanks him. If you want to thank me, just Team Rocket watches from a cliff, no longer in their random beachside castle. Jesse angrily says that Jinx is still conning people into thinking that the human Santa Claus is real, and the team decides to follow it so that they can be led straight to Santa's workshop, stealing all of their toys and proving Jinx as the real Saint Nicholas. Jesse especially views it as excellent revenge for her doll. Back on the beach, the team begins to set out a wooden raft they made, with Ash suggesting that they have their water Pokemon pull it. Regardless of how well they do it, the group is leaving from the Palm Tropics to reach the North Pole in like, a day. Clearly, they should just be using the Fly HM to get there faster. They start off strong, speeding ahead with Team Rocket in pursuit. However, the Pokemon and humans all quickly become tired and weak from exposure to the elements in an unshaded raft, with Brock panically realizing that they drifted off course. How he can tell in the middle of a featureless ocean with no compass and no sun direction thingy is a mystery, like he doesn't triangulate anything. They yell at the Pokemon to rush forward again, which they do, but then all immediately run out of energy again. Ash then takes over for the Pokemon, jumping into the water and swimming with a whole raft of people and Pokemon dragging behind him. A near impossible feat of strength, and one of the first signs that Ash is a god of an athlete, or actually just a literal god. But even his deific strength isn't enough, becoming tired himself as well. They are so lucky there are no waves or current in the ocean, in fact it's like a completely smooth water. As Ash begins to tiredly say that they should maybe turn back, a voice in his head reassures him that he's going in the right direction. He asks the group if they heard anything, and Misty's like, No, I didn't hear anything, Ash. Now get back to swimming! So he does. And then mere moments later, the voice appears again, telling him that he has a long way to go, as waves suddenly crash around the group out of nowhere. Ash loses the rope around him and sinks into the water as a giant glowing shadow approaches him. Yes, I know that sounds contradictory, but glowing shadow is the best way to describe it. The figure then reveals itself to be a Lapras, able to talk via telepathy, somehow. Ash stares in amazement for a moment before grabbing his neck and spasming around drowning. But Lapras brings him to the surface. Ash asks where it's taking him, and instead of answering, it swims in really fast circles around the raft as Misty pulls out the Pokedex on it. Misty and Brock then also hear the voice of the Pokemon in their head. Misty is confused, but Brock just says, Nah, telepathy. Like, it's something that almost every Pokemon can do. Which, no, this is one of the first you've ever seen do this. Show some more wonder. It's not even a psychic type, that's even more impressive. The Lapras explains that it was sent by Santa himself to search for the missing Jinx, and now that they've found it, will lead them to the North Pole now that they've proven themselves trustworthy, as Team Rocket continues to follow behind in their submarine. Now, I don't know what I expected Lapras to sound like when it was speaking actual English, but this wasn't it. Santa Claus asked me to search for one of his Jinx. It's been missing for quite a while. That search has brought me here, to you. In a rainstorm, with there still somehow amazingly being no waves, Jinx levitates its hair extremely creepily all over Brock and Misty to keep them dry, while Ash enjoys the rain on Lapras's back. It warns him that it's going to get pretty cold soon, but Ash is like, Haha, don't worry, I'm pretty tough. A little cold won't bother me. Cut to them riding through ice-filled water, having to wrap up in Jinx's hair to stay even the slightest bit warm, with Misty making fun of Ash for his declaration. A little cold doesn't bother you, huh? A little cold doesn't, but a lot sure does. As they approach a jagged ice palace island thing, looking more like the Fortress of Solitude than Santa's place, Lapras tells them that they've arrived. And I'm going to play this clip purely because it's still so funny to me that a Lapras, which sounds like this through its telepathy somehow, talks about Santa to the Pokemon protagonist. 
it's just so, so funny to me. See? That's where Santa lives. Oh, wow. Jinx, jinx. Before they can land, Team Rocket surfaces from their sub in front of them. The trio, exhausted, gives their motto through labored breath, before a cold wind causes them to huddle together as they quickly finish it. Jesse then demands that they hand over Santa, claiming that Jinx is actually the gift giver when Ash seems confused about it. The main trio then laugh at the thought of Santa being a Jinx, to Jesse's anger. The rockets then launch a missile into the sky, and it falls back down right towards the raft, with the main group panicking over it crashing into them. As they stand there and scream, Team Rocket quickly scuttles on board, grabs the Jinx, then hops back to their sub before the missile explodes into a net and encompasses the Pokey crew, allowing the rockets to escape. They then flee onto the spiky island, which is revealed to have buildings and a Christmas tree built of ice. Inside the building, they see a group of Jinx all working on preparing presents. Instead of connecting the dots to the Jinx being helpers, Jesse instead assumes that they're all Santas, and that they can easily steal all the toys they want from them. They then see the real Santa Claus, a human male, which just causes Jesse to go into pure existential confusion mode, learning that maybe, just maybe, the Jinx that stole her toy wasn't Santa. As Santa idly chats with one of the Jinx, hoping that Lapras returns with his boots, since apparently he only has one pair, Team Rocket suddenly let themselves in and offer Santa the boot. However, before he can thank them for it, Ash's group runs in and warns him not to trust the Rockets. James and Meowth then quickly tie up Santa, and despite the place being full of Jinx and Team Rocket being unarmed, they still think they have the upper hand and Jesse's like, Don't move! If you want to have a happy new year, that is. Threatening doing something evil to Santa, they never say what they're gonna do. The Jinx are then forced to load up the Gyarados sub with sacks of presents, while Ash's group and Santa watch all tied up, begging them to stop. Jesse declares that this is revenge for all the presents she never got, causing Santa to ask what she means. She walks over saying, Ho, ho, like anime characters going, Ho, but you know, like Santa, and then reminds him of Jinx stealing the doll. A Jinx uses her hair tendril to connect with Jesse's mind, seeing what she means. It then leaves and returns with the doll, completely restored. Jesse angrily asks why Santa held on to it for ten years, with Santa telling her that he meant to return it after it was fixed, but Jesse stopped believing in him after that point, making it impossible for him to bring it back, as he can only go where hearts are open. Jesse tearfully apologizes for doubting Santa, with the protagonist admiring her change of heart. Santa then asks if she'd be kind enough to untie them and return everything now that the issue's been resolved. But Jesse's like, uh, I'm not that grateful, before fleeing with the other two in the sub. As the group begs for the rockets to return everything, Jesse says, You sure want a lot, why don't you try asking Santa? <laughs> and Lapras emerges from the water like, That wasn't funny. And I'm serious, the exchange actually goes basically like that. I'm not making a goof. Christmas belongs to everyone. You cannot steal it. Lapras then uses Ice Beam to freeze the submarine in place, also freezing Team Rocket inside it. Ash then has Charmander burn up the rope restraining them, and then use Fire Spin on the sub, heating it up, but also freeing it from the ice. Not a very smart move. Jesse then sends out Weezing instead of James, and has it blind Charmander with a meaty sludge to the face as the rockets then flee. Ash apologizes to Santa for failing to stop them. But Santa assures him that, oh, <laughs> everything will be alright, Ash, my boy, before gathering all his jinx and having them use Psywave to lift the sub out of the water in an absolutely horrific display. They shake all the presents back onto the land, ice stuff, before causing the sub to explode and launch the rockets away. At night, as Santa is about to leave on his ponytail-drawn sleigh, since Stantler and Sawsbuck don't exist yet, he asks Lapras to return the Pokey crew back to where they came. He then turns to the group, just says, No reindeer, 
and then rushes off into the sky as it starts to snow. Ash suddenly realizes that he never told Santa what he wants, but Lapras assures him that he knows, as Jinx brings over some gifts for the group. Ah, I forgot! Forgot what? I forgot to tell Santa Claus what I want for Christmas! Oh, Santa knows. Jinx, 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 For us? Merry Christmas. Don't forget Santa Claus! And Jinx, too! The episode ends with Team Rocket back at the castle, lying injured in bed. Meowth says that Jesse might as well take down the stocking she hung on the bed frame, but Jesse and James remain hopeful that Santa will forgive them. They then hear sleigh bells in the distance and look over to see a Jinx out their window, which uses its kiss to put them all to sleep just as Santa rides off into the sky shouting, Merry Christmas! God, this episode is so, so weird. And I can see why a lot of people generally don't even consider it canon. But I can also see why it's extremely fun to believe it's canon too. Santa is real and has an army of Jinx, exists in the same world as Jim Leader uses her mind to turn people into dolls. Among many other things, it's fun, okay? It's fun to connect all of these into the same universe. I think the reason this episode is so weird is just because of how obsessed it is with Christmas. They say Santa more times than a full-fledged Christmas movie, and Team Rocket basically played generic bah humbug villains in any Christmas cartoon full of puns the whole time. It's so out of character for just Pokemon in general. Hearing Ash scream about Santa Claus's safety while Lapras gently tells him that they're almost at the North Pole workshop is just so jarring. Like, I know that there are like Pikachu merchandise things wearing a Santa hat, but it's never explicitly said in the anime after this, like, Santa's real and Christmas is real and all that fun stuff. I can't even get my words together for this. This is an episode that you just have to see for yourself. Just be warned, though, you may only be able to find the blackface version, so make sure you're not watching it near people that would not understand that it's a very poorly thought-out Pokemon Christmas episode. And finally, we have... Snow Way Out! Synopsis. Becoming lost on a snowy mountain, our heroes and Team Rocket must survive the night in a harsh blizzard. But when Ash gets separated from his friends, he must find some way to endure the cold on his own. Or does he? So, due to this episode airing out of order from everything, mostly due to Porygon, this episode is not banned, but has some weird numbering confusion, being considered a special episode and not having a show number. It's also not present on Netflix, so I'm considering this episode banned in a way. Our main trio come across a fork in the road, and have to choose which way to go. Ash just randomly picks one way, but Brock warns that it leads to a mountain. Ash is like, aw, scared of a little hike, and continues down the path, with no promise that it even leads to the same destination, as the other two run after him. It then jump cuts to them in the middle of a snowy pathway, with Misty balking at the idea of climbing it. Why it took her until they were in the middle of this snowy landscape to say that instead of closer to the base? I don't know, maybe she zoned out for a while and then realized where they were. Brock says that they should turn back, but Ash is like, I never back down from a challenge. Further up the hill, Brock and Misty are bundled up, while Ash marches on proudly. Misty asks how much longer they'll be, and Brock says that they're near the top, before realizing that his compass is reacting to the iron in the ground and going haywire. If the compass doesn't work, how are we going to find our way? Ah, uh, now don't panic. If the sun's up there about 3 o'clock, according to my calculations, that means... What? What does it mean? We're lost. Ah! Ash sends out Pidgeotto to scout around, and it returns to lead them to the correct path. Meanwhile, on the other side of the mountain, Meowth and James complain about the twerps choosing to traverse the cold weather. But Jessie is having the time of her life. She explains that the snow reminds her of a childhood memory, a snogasbord, which is just snow shaped like food that has some sauce or seaweed on it, which her family ate because they didn't have much money. 
I mean, no, what fair. That's a pretty cute and wholesome story about an impoverished child making the best out of life, especially considering her mom made it, and her mom vanishes hunting for Mew when Jessie is still young, making it all the more bittersweet. I like it. Also, yeah, fun fact, Jessie's mom got lost searching for Mew in the Appalachians, and it's only in, like, an audio drama, and, like, it's not... Most people don't know that. Deciding to just move on from this discussion, James says that they should take the hot air balloon to cut Team Twerp off. They start up the flame, make a pun, and start to give their motto, letting the balloon just drift away. Why Meowth didn't just jump on to stop it, I don't know, maybe he was just being polite. Unfortunately, this means that Team Rocket has to trudge through the snow themselves as well. As happens often in this anime, a storm quickly rolls in out of nowhere, and it begins to snow. Unlike before, though, they actually comment on how quick it appeared this time, and say that they should hurry before the sun sets. Elsewhere, James whines that all their food and supplies were on the balloon, and now they're as good as dead. But Jessie, staring intently at the snow, lets the other two know that she could make a snogus board, which they are upset by. However, Jessie says that the soy sauce was on that balloon, and she needs it for her meal, so she stomps off to chase it. Later, as the snowfall turns into a blizzard, Brock yells at Ash that they'll need to stop or they'll just make the situation worse. They finally stand their ground, and Ash relents for the first time this journey. Just as they prepare to dig a cave in the snow for cover, a gust of wind knocks Ash over, causing him to lose his grip on Pikachu, the storm blowing the Pokemon away, with Ash chasing after him. Misty tries to follow, but Brock keeps her back for risk of her getting lost as well. Ash continues forward, calling for Pikachu, eventually hearing it crying back and following its voice. He then finds them hanging by a hand on a cliff. He tries to reach out to grab onto his Pokemon, but misses as Pikachu just slips, falling further and managing to grab on again. Thinking quickly, Ash has Bulbasaur use Vine Whip to rescue Pikachu. But Pikachu, the clumsy rascal, loses his grip and starts falling again. Thankfully, Bulbasaur is quicker and manages to catch the Chew, with both Bulbasaur and Ash pulling him to safety and a touching reunion. Unable to climb back where they came from, Ash remembers Brock's suggestion on making a snow cave, although he only makes it in a little bit when his hands start to get numb, so he has Charmander help by burning a hole through the snow. In the cave, he has his starter trio and Pikachu help him block up the cave with snow to keep the wind out, then having everyone gather around Charmander for warmth. Elsewhere, Team Rocket has built themselves an igloo, but have nothing but a quickly extinguished candle for heat. Jessie tries to cheer everyone up with her snow cooking, but it doesn't work. Meowth finds three used matches, and James suggests that they try to imagine them being hot in order to stay warm. Each of the trio takes turns imagining themselves in hot places. Meowth in the spring, James on the beach resort, and Jessie in the desert, surrounded by heaters, in three jackets, and under a kotatsu. This backfires on them with Meowth and James falling asleep, having to be woken up by Jesse so they don't freeze to death. Back in Ash's cave, Charmander begins to weaken, so Ash tries to recall it to its Pokeball, but it seems reluctant to do so. Realizing that the Pokeballs are probably warm, Ash also recalls Bulbasaur and Squirtle, who both also seem to not want to leave. Just as Ash is about to recall Pikachu as well for the first time since Ash got him, the rodent refuses, tackling Ash and portraying that it wants to stay out and help keep his trainer warm, which Ash welcomes. As the two keep close near the back of the cave, Ash wraps his Pokeballs in his jacket to make sure that they're alright. Suddenly, part of their barrier breaks down, letting cold air rush in, with Ash blocking it with his back to stop it, instead of, you know, covering it up again. He tries to get Pikachu to return to his Pokeball one more time, but his best friend refuses adamantly. His other Pokemon also all appear from their Pokeballs again, each of them running over to keep Ash company and warmth. Even Pidgeotto, whom even Ash is surprised to see is relevant again. Squirtle? Squirtle, Squirtle. Bulbasaur? Babashar. Charmander? Cha-cha! Pidgeotto? Yeah! Moved by their kindness, Ash accepts that they'll refuse to leave him and will all be cold together, crying as they slowly trudge through the night. Against all odds, when morning comes and the storm clears, Ash and his Pokemon emerge safely from the snow cave, grateful that they all get to see another morning. He then hears his friends calling out to him, and it turns out that they're alright as well. 
being pulled back up by Onyx, his two companions tell him that they both managed to dig into a hot spring with the Pokemon, and were warm all night long, much to Ash's annoyance. Brock also points out that the snow caused Meowth's balloon to crash near them, and, using Vulpix, they use it to cross through the remainder of the treacherous mountain area. Team Rocket, pinching each other to stay awake, sees the balloon drifting past them and rush to catch it, but fall off an unseen cliff and into a hot spring. Ash's group then slowly flies towards another town, I guess hoping that they're not arrested on sight for riding around in a wanted balloon. The episode closes with Team Rocket now unable to leave the spring, as they get too bad of a chill when trying to do it, crying about their fate. Considering this is right after Porygon and Jinx, this is a pretty nice heartwarming break, being an actually good episode. I think it's one of the first real times where we see just how deeply Ash cares for his Pokemon. While this becomes reoccurring later in the series, especially in the movies, and has happened before, I think this is the first clear-cut, obvious, over-the-top demonstration of it. Plus, we get to see Pokemon being used for practical problem-solving again, with each of Ash's Pokemon, except Pikachu and Squirtle, doing a task that only they can do, with even Onix being mentioned doing something off-screen as well. So, short and simple, this is a good episode. It's cute, fun, and kind of a shame it was removed from being shown places. Also, Team Rocket is still great in it, don't worry. I think that was it for today, actually, so... Hey guys, it's Intro Ryan again. I apologize if you can still hear my dogs, because they haven't shut up yet. I just wanted to say, because this episode is probably running a bit long, thank you for listening. It, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to the time I spend on this, and I, I just really appreciate it. I cannot say that enough. I know I keep repeating myself, but I just really appreciate it. So if you are new and you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow or whatever the thing you listen to this on has you do to keep up with the show. Because the more you listen, the more I appreciate you. And the more I appreciate you, the more I can say I appreciate you. It's just a fun cycle for all of us. Tell your friends to. Tell your friends I appreciate them as well. Even if they don't listen, just, just let them know I appreciate their existence. So, have a great morning, day, evening, night, outside of space-time, whatever it is you got going on. Just have a good one. Bye.